The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. We're going to talk about that today. But first, some of you will know uh, that I am a Saskatchewan Rough Rider fan. Yep. Even though I've lived here in Fort McMurray for almost 30 years, I was born in Regina, uh, so that means I didn't choose to be a Rider fan. It chose me. It is in my blood. It is part of my family's history. There's nothing I can do to change it, even if I wanted to. Uh, when the Riders won the Grey Cup in 1989, that's how far I'm going back, I was two years old. And my mom tells me that after the game, uh, they took us, they drove down the main street in Regina where there was a huge party happening, and they put me on the window of the car so that my two-year-old self could high-five rider fans who were partying and getting wasted in the streets of Regina. Don't judge her too hard. Uh, it was a different time in 1989, and she didn't hear our family series that we just finished. So, fast forward to 2007, and it has been almost 20 years since the riders had won that great cup. 20 years of heartbreak and sorrow, and my family could all remember that championship game in 1989, but I could not. But now it was 2007, and the riders were in the great cup once again, playing the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, our sworn enemies. My family uh, gathered in, about 12 of us, they gathered in my one-bedroom, second-story apartment to watch the game. It was stressful. It was not fun. We did not enjoy watching the game. There were ups and downs all the way through. And then nearing the end of the third quarter, something disastrous happened. The power went out in our building. 20 years I had been waiting to watch the Riders win a Grey Cup, and the power went out. Uh, there was wailing and gnashing of teeth, and there was crying, and it was crazy, and chaos erupted. And I looked out the window, I could see the power wasn't just out in our, our, our building, it was the whole neighborhood. So I made an executive decision. Uh, I rushed everybody downstairs, all 12 of us. We piled into three vehicles, and we just set off down the road looking for power. And it is a good thing that the traffic lights weren't working because we wouldn't have listened to them even if they were. You see, most of Timberley had the power out too and things were looking grim. There was only minutes left in the game. What, we didn't know what was happening, couldn't find it on the radio. And finally we saw our salvation, the glowing sign at Boston Pizza. And we screeched into the parking lot, probably really crooked, and we ran into the bar side where they were showing the game. And my little brother Jacob was a minor at the time, and so we had to sneak him into the bar. And we told him, if they don't let you in, you are on your own. You can, it's every man for himself. You can watch through the window. See, I, I remember everything about those moments that I remember it was standing room only. I remember trying to catch my breath from the stress. I, I remember the smell of cactus-cut potatoes, and the palpable sense of excitement in the room. And the riders won that night. And Kerry Joseph led, led us to our third Grey Cup in our over 100-year history. I, I didn't say we were good. I just said I love them. If you ask me, where were you when the riders won that 2000 and Grey Cup? I would have an answer for you. I could tell you exactly where I was and who I was with and what happened. And some of the most interesting stories start with the question, where were you when? 
Like, where were you when the clock struck midnight on Y2K? I was in this room. Somebody hit the power switch at midnight just to try to freak everybody out. Where were you on 9-11 when you first heard there was an attack? Where were you when Fort McMurray began its hectic evacuation? Where were you in 2010 when Canada won Olympic gold in both men's and women's hockey? And hopefully in a week or two, where were you when the Toronto Raptors became the first Canadian team to win the NBA championship? Where were you when? Sitting around a campfire with family and friends, it is my favorite question to ask because the stories are always so good. Today we're starting a brand new message series and it's all about Jesus' stories. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the various accounts and perspectives written on the life of Jesus. And we're going to read these stories and try to figure out what they mean for us today. But this book, where we get them from, there's something to remember about this book. That this Bible is not the work of a single author. It's not a fictional book with heroic characters that have been made up for our enjoyment. Is a collection of letters and historical documents written by over 30 different people. People who asked the question and who were asked the question, where were you when Jesus healed the blind man? Where were you when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? Where were you when he was killed on the cross? And where were you when you first heard that he had been raised from the dead? These people who wrote these stories were really there. They knew what had happened because they had seen it with their own eyes and they had talked to people who had witnessed it firsthand. And they knew it was true because they were there when it happened. They could remember the sights and the sounds and the smells. They could remember how they felt about and who was there. They could feel the pain and joy even still. And so... Knowing what they had experienced was important. They wrote it down, and many years later, we compiled it into this book called the Bible. And because of that, we are going to spend the next few weeks here at Fort City looking at the four Gospels and the four accounts of the life and times of Jesus found at the beginning of the New Testament. They were written by four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each author of the Gospels had a different perspective on the life of Jesus and had a different purpose for writing what they ended up writing. There's a lot of research right now on what makes millennials tick. A millennial is basically anyone between the ages of 23 and 39 years old right now. So I'm a millennial, and many of you in the room are millennials. And one of the things that research has found about us is that we have a strong distrust of established institutions. We don't have much faith in the way that things have always been done, and the things that our parents had a lot of trust in, we end up being very skeptical of. We are skeptical of the media that they are actually objective in their reporting and that they don't have, uh, they don't have an angle that they're trying to convince us of. We're, we're skeptical of the government, that, they, that they're going to actually act in our best interest or act in the best interests of others. And for many of us, we are cautious and skeptical when it comes to church and the history that church 
brings along with it. And for many millennials, and this rings true with me, there is a higher importance placed on relationship than there is on established institutions. When we have relationship with someone, then we are able to determine if they're trustworthy or not. For us, it is easier to trust a face than it is to trust a faceless institution. And so what I want to do today is to take a moment to introduce us to the four people who wrote about the life of Jesus. I want to talk about who they were and what their motivations were for writing what they did. I want us to get to the point where we can feel that we can trust these authors and understand that they wrote what they wrote for us. Now, each one of them wrote their accounts to a different audience and for a different purpose. And so let's talk about that. Let's start with the very first one. Let's start with Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. And most scholars agree that Matthew uh, was written by Matthew, the tax collector that we hear about. And this is no small thing. We've talked before about how tax collectors were pretty shady people. Uh, They were considered to be the lowest of the low in Jewish culture. They were greedy and dishonest, and they were considered traitors to their own people. And the fact that Jesus asked Matthew to be one of his 12 apostles, and the fact that the very first account in the Bible written about Jesus is written by this person with this shady history says something very important about our faith. That no matter what society thinks of you, no matter if you've walked away from God, no matter if you're a sinner or a saint, that God wants you to be part of his story. That this is not just a social club. Church is not just a social club where you have to fit the mold to join. That it's a diverse group of people from all walks of life trying to figure out how to best live like Jesus would want us to. So Matthew, he was a Jew. And when he sat down to write about Jesus, he was writing to a Jewish audience. In the Old Testament, it's the, is the ancient text uh, of the Jewish faith, and it is full of promises of a coming Messiah, someone who would be sent to redeem and restore the nation of Israel, someone who would change everything for the Jewish people. And Matthew wrote his book to tell the Jewish people that Jesus was, in fact, that man, that he was the Messiah, the promised one, that Jesus is the one who came to fulfill the story of the Torah in the Old Testament. You can see it in the very first words of his book. He said in Matthew 1.1, the very beginning, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew starts off his book by telling us, by stating that Jesus is the promised one, And then he goes on to give a quick genealogy showing that Jesus is a descendant of David and ultimately Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. And this sort of thing would be a very important step in trying to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Fifty times in his book, Matthew directly refers to the Old Testament, and at least 70 times he alludes to it. He's trying to connect the new with the old. And it is his goal that Jews who placed a very high value on their sacred texts would be convinced that Jesus was the promised one 
that was written about. Matthew wanted his readers to know something very important, that Jesus was the rescue that they had been waiting for. So the next book, Mark. Mark wrote the second gospel, and like Matthew, he was also a Jew. And his is actually the earliest account that we have that was written about Jesus. It is likely that it was penned around the year 66 AD. Mark pops up a few places in the New Testament. Uh, And though he was a Jew like Matthew, uh, he directed his writing at a secular audience, a Roman audience. Mark's main point was that Jesus is the Son of God. And at the time that uh, Mark wrote this all down, the Romans were in charge. And the Romans, uh, if you know your Greek mythology, it kind of carried over in the Roman times. But there was a lot of different gods. They had many temples and many altars built to many different gods. In fact, they, they, they even had an altar that they had built for the unknown god. And just in case a god who they didn't know showed up, they could say, Oh no, we were expecting you. We built that altar for you. So many gods. And the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, the one promised to restore Israel, meant very little to these people. They were not Jews. They did not know the history. And Mark wanted his readers to know that Jesus wasn't just the Messiah, but he was in fact the Son of God. That he wasn't just the Savior of the Jews, that he was the Savior of all mankind. When Mark traces his genealogy like Matthew did, he doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam, the very first human, and the person that all humanity is connected to. He is saying that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came for all mankind. Look at the very first words in Mark's account. He starts off by saying, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. God. Mark wanted his readers to know that all mankind can find hope in Jesus. Let's talk about Luke, the third gospel. Of the four gospel writers, Luke was the only Gentile, which is to say that he was the only non-Jew. Luke was an educated man. He was a doctor. Uh, And of the four writers, Luke was the one most concerned with the specific details of the life of Jesus. His book was written to Gentiles to convince them that Jesus wasn't just another myth, but that he was truly real. That he lived and breathed and ate and slept. That he was God, but yet somehow very much fully human. Tradition and myth, even today, plays a huge influence on people's beliefs. But the Gentiles could still remember the Greek gods from their history. Religious myths that weren't necessarily based in fact. And Luke did not want people to write off Jesus as just some new religious myth. And so he sat down to write down a carefully researched and chronicled account of the life of Jesus. He was meticulous and dutiful in his effort to just write down the facts. Luke carefully investigated the life of Jesus and spent his time interviewing and recording the accounts of first-hand witnesses. And he was asking them that question. Where were you when Jesus did that? He wanted to present a well-rounded and trustworthy account, so he went straight to the source. In the very first line of Luke's book, he tells us, 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He wanted people to know that the story was true. He wanted people to know that, yes, Jesus walked on water and he healed the blind and he did all these miraculous things, but that he was also born in a town called Bethlehem, that he grew up just like the rest of us, that he would often become tired and weary and have to find a place to rest, that he had to pray often, that sometimes Jesus was puzzled by the things he experienced, that he was real. Luke highlighted the humanity of Jesus in a time when gods and myths were anything but human. Luke wanted his readers to know and for us to know that the stories are true, that they could be trusted. So let's go to the fourth gospel, John. Of all the authors... John would have been the one who was closest to Jesus. John was one of the original 12 apostles that followed Jesus. Peter, James, and John uh, were Jesus' closest friends. And we know this because often in the accounts, these, three, these four go off by themselves to spend time together. Uh, but we also know that John was most likely Jesus' closest friend, his best friend. John's gospel is unique, and it's interesting because Jesus lived to be about 33 years old. His ministry was about three and a half years old, but the book of John only covers 30 days. In fact, of the 21 chapters in John, 10 of them cover only seven days of the life of Jesus. One third of all the words in his book describe an event over 24 hours. John's book was not a biography. It was not telling us where Jesus had went or what he did. It was written to tell us who Jesus is. That Jesus is God and salvation in him is offered to all mankind just by believing in him. This is how John starts off his book, John 1. And in this section, he uses the term, the word, as a phrase to refer to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was in the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John wrote his book not just to tell us that Jesus was a man, not to just to tell us that Jesus was a son of God, not just to tell us that Jesus was the Messiah. John wrote his book that we could know Jesus was God and that he had always been God from the very beginning and that he would always be God till the very end. And that by believing these gospel stories, we can find a path into the light, into fullness in Christ, into discovering why we were made. Near the end of John's account, he writes it this way. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his 
name. He wanted everyone to know. He wanted everyone to believe. Last year, my seven-year-old son, Camille, came home from school talking about one of his support staff that was in his class that he really liked. And he told me her name was Captain Bala. Now, Camille has an accent, so it sounded like Captain Baller. And I just kind of laughed, and I'm like, actually, I don't think Captain Bala doesn't really sound like a real name. Are you sure you heard that right? I'm kind of doubting him. I'm kind of poking him a bit. And that's, you're probably wrong. It's probably something else. Uh, and so I was convinced he was wrong. He was convinced he was right. And then we went a few weeks later to parent-teacher interviews, and I'm sitting with his teacher, and she's like, oh, Camille has been doing great work with Captain Bala. It was somebody's name. And I, I had, like, I thought I knew what was true, and Camille thought he knew what was true, and uh, I should have believed him. He was the one who was there. He was the one who knew her. He was right. I should have trusted him. When it comes to the four Gospels, the Gospel writers who gave us a glimpse of the life of Jesus, we can trust them because they were there. And they wrote down their stories because they wanted people to know the truth. They wanted the whole world to know that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the most important and powerful story ever told. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up now uh, as we finish up this morning. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to trust. To trust in the words of this book and to trust the people who wrote down these stories so many years ago. And more than that, to trust in the God who breathed life into these words and wants to breathe life into you. And for some of you this morning, that will mean trusting for the very first time. It will mean admitting that the stories are not just stories after all, that God is real and that he wants to bring light into your darkness. And for some of you, it, it won't mean trusting for the very first time. It will mean renewing that trust that has been in, in you all along that maybe has faded over time. You once believed with your heart and your mind, but as time has gone on, you've drifted. And for all of us, it could mean committing to spend time as we go through this series of gospel stories. Uh, it could mean committing to actually reading them ourselves. Discover what these guys saw and uh, what they thought was so important that they had to write it down. I promise you, you'll discover things about Jesus you never knew. Uh, if you spend the next few weeks or over now between summer reading the Gospels, I'm telling you, you'll learn things that'll change your life. And for some of us, the way we will express our trust in Jesus is through baptism. It's a way of declaring that we believe and trust in the power of the story of Jesus Christ. That we decided to let his story, his truth, his life free us and lead us and sustain us. And baptism is a powerful way of solidifying your faith in the presence of people who just want to cheer you on. And so on June 30th, we're having another baptism service. We've already got three people signed up. I'm so excited. If you believe, if you trust in him, then you are ready 
to galvanize your faith in the waters of baptism. You can talk to me or Doug or any of the other staff here. We will help make that happen for you. If you even have the smallest thought that baptism is for you, I want to invite you to take that bold next step and reach out to one of us. And another way that we express our trust in Jesus is through communion. On the night before his death, Jesus sat at a table with his closest friends and they were commemorating a Jewish holiday called Passover. It was a feast to honor the day that the people of Israel were saved from the angel of death by putting uh, the, the spotless blood of a lamb over their door and saved their lives. And for thousands of for many, many years, they celebrated Passover to remember that night. A story that was so important to all Jews. A story that Jews placed their trust in. And as Jesus sat with his disciples on that last night, at that last supper, he would redefine that Passover celebration forever. And he held up a piece of bread in the air and he said, take it. This is my body broken for you. And then after giving thanks, he held up a cup and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for many. That night he turned everything around for them. It was an invitation for them to trust not just in the stories of old, but to trust in him. They didn't need to only remember the saving work of God because the saving work of God was sitting right in front of them. This morning we're going to take communion together. And like that night so many years ago, we're going to eat and we're going to drink and we're going to celebrate the truth that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John so desperately wanted us to know. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. That the stories are true. And that if we only trust him, we will find life in the arms of our Creator. Let's take a moment to pray. And Father God, we thank you this morning that we've been able to look at this book, that we've been able to look at the different people who have written down these stories about, about you. And Father God, I pray that this morning in this room that we would begin to trust these stories, that we'd trust the people who wrote them down. And then because of that, we would place our trust in you. And whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time that, Father God, this room in this moment, that we would decide to trust you again. That we would decide to give our everything to you once again. Let faith rise up in this room today, Father God. And as we take communion together, as we come to the front and partake together, that we wouldn't just remember these stories, that we wouldn't just remember the things that you have done in years gone by, but that we would remember the things that you have done for us, that you have given us a chance at life, that you have given us life to the full. I pray this in your holiest of names. Amen.